Hey guys, welcome back to Crafting Fitness. Today I have my friend and colleague Michael Band back on for round two. In this conversation, we focus on the concept of adaptive physiology. This is a concept that undergirds a lot of Michael's approach to coaching and how he solves problems with his clients. We specifically dove into the following topics. The difference between germ theory and terrain theory, susceptibility to stress and sickness, the three big levers, physiology, genes, and mental and emotional, top-down versus bottom-up approaches, among Therese, and finally Michael's five pillars of performance. If you enjoy this episode, please like and share with others as it helps us build our reach and be able to share more great content with the public. All right, so we are back, round two with my friend and colleague, Michael Ban, And last time we dove more into maybe the philosophical side of coaching, and now we want to dive more into the physiological side of coaching. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me back. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited. There's always uh, lots to discuss with you, and I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy this episode. So very broadly, the area we want to focus on is adaptive physiology, which is a term that I've heard you speak on and mentioned multiple times. And I think it's a, an interesting uh, idea for as little as I know about it. And I think for the fitness space, it's not something that's widely known or, or thought about. So this could be a nice introduction to expose people to like, what does that mean? And then how does it tie into fitness and performance? Yeah, I, I tend to think that the whatever you may want to call them, the fitness influencers, they tend to probably adhere or subscribe to this ideology of adaptive physiology and they may not even realize it uh, and really that's like what we do as coaches right like we just provide a stimulus to cause an adaptation and so adaptive physiology is absolutely how fitness works but oh man I don't remember the exact point in time that it happened in my own career but sometime around 10 years ago maybe 11 years ago um it was before social media and all the different functional medicine buzzwords and gut health and all these different things because we didn't have Instagram back then. But I started learning a little bit about germ theory, especially in school, right? And, you know, you start thinking about like what Louis Pasteur kind of figured out. I'm like, oh, these germs, they create sickness and blah, blah, blah. And I won't go too crazy deep into like how germ theory manifested and what germ theory is and why it's also potentially wrong because germ theory has a lot of flaws that... I think we don't um, readily acknowledge so easily here in Western society. But there was another theory that came around at the exact same time called terrain theory. And I'm not a zealot like some people I know. They're like, oh, germs don't even exist. Like there are some real germ theory deniers out there. And actually, it's really fun to talk with them because I usually just ask them, well, if germs don't exist, why do you wash your hands after you go to the bathroom? and just leave it at that it's like all right so we have to acknowledge that there are microorganisms out there that do actually cause sickness if we're susceptible to the sickness right and so this idea of germ theory and terrain theory you know terrain theory was by you know a, a, a guy by the last name of uh, Bouchamp I think it's Anton Bouchamp um, it's escaping me now I got hit pretty hard in the head yesterday um, jiu-jitsu is not a gentle art um but he basically came around and said you know what yeah okay sure germs may make you sick for sure like yeah you might get sepsis you might get gangrene you might get a cold or whatever but it's the terrain that actually leaves you more susceptible now in recent years we've seen this we've seen this to be true very recently because of covid how come in a household Everyone can test positive for COVID, but some people are symptomatic and some are not, right? So some people are just healthier than others, right? If you're, you know, if your BMI is 35, you are obese. Your terrain is not going to be able to adapt and survive a sickness as easily as someone that's BMI is 25, young, fit, healthy, optimal vitamin D levels, great emotional health, good boundaries in life, not codependent, blah, blah, blah. And so I could expose two people to the exact same you know, germ, microorganism, 
and they will have very different responses. And we see this to be true in fitness. And so years ago, I kind of just started to think about it. And I was like, well, I see so many people in a CrossFit gym doing the exact same workouts. Some people are getting better. Some are not. In pain, I saw this in pain quite a bit because before I even got to OPEX a decade ago, I had done over 12,000 functional movement screen assessments, quite literally 12,000. And I collected the data on all that. And there was this weird discontention in me. There was a weird thing in me where I was like, well, these people are scoring less than 14. They're getting asymmetries. They're not getting perfect scores. They should be having pain. They should be getting hurt but they're getting stronger and better and they're not getting hurt and they feel incredible. Something is wrong with the FMS and every movement screen for that matter, because years later, I did a lot of research on that when I was in grad school and just figured out that we cannot predict pain or injury. And because we can't predict pain or injury, we can't prevent it because you can only prevent what you can predict. Otherwise it's just crapshoot. So ultimately when it came to looking at like, why are three people getting better at CrossFit and three other people are getting worse at CrossFit, but they're doing the same workouts. There's an adaptation that's occurring or where my brain kind of goes is I like to look at why we're not adapting. So I became fascinated with program design because at first I thought it was all about the program and it was all about the movement. And then over the years, I've written 50, 60,000 programs, you know, minimum. Um, and I've had, you know, clients for seven, eight, nine years consecutively. And so I think that's something that if you haven't done that, you probably won't see it in the same way because not many coaches can say they've actually coached the same human being for eight years straight. Um, and not many coaches can say they've done that for dozens of people. And so having done that, I really looked at kind of the commonalities of everyone that does improve, what are things that they're all doing the same? And I kind of stole that from Poliquin when he was alive, because he sat me down and he was like, listen, Michael, just find the crap that all the successful people are doing and recreate the similarities of that. That's what you should look for. So a great example of that was, you know, everyone that's successful is prioritizing sleep. Hey, look at that. Maybe we should prioritize sleep. Let's stop looking for like the intricacies in the program and start seeing what they do outside of the gym. And then when you do the math, the math is pretty simple. There's 168 hours in a week. And let's say you spend what, five, six hours a week training elite level athletes, like especially in CrossFit, you know, you're looking at maybe 15 hours a week. That's still a very small percentage. I mean, that, that's not a massive chunk of your life spent in the gym. So, you know, old school coaches like Mark Ripito, you know, they would say like, you don't get big and strong by lifting weights, you get big and strong by recovering from lifting weights. So you take that thought process and you apply it to fitness and it's like, well, adaptive physiology is all about the set principle, specific adaptations to impose demands. But what happens if our physiology isn't ready to adapt to that specific stimulus? And so germ theory kind of, opened my eyes when I started studying terrain theory. Because once I studied terrain theory, that's when I realized there's so much more to health than just lack of symptoms. I mean, you can be asymptomatic and just be a ticking time bomb. And we saw it with, you know, even just with, you know, COVID, people that were appearingly very healthy, you know, they had low body fat percentages and they were very strong and they get completely wrecked by it and or they died, right? well, there is such a thing as being too fit. And so by doing that, you've actually wrecked your terrain because you're intense in your gym training too much that your body is prioritizing surviving the gym versus building resiliency to survive a virus. You don't have infinite resources. And so we overtrain. Well, what happens? The body starts to say, hey, how do we get back from that fight? You know, that, that massive peaking period of four weeks with lots of lactate and heavy lifting who cares about some virus? We're going to survive this bear attack. And so adaptive physiology kind of came about just from myself going to all these medical conferences. I was going to functional medicine conferences, naturopathic medical conferences, toxicology conferences, and just trying to see what is everyone saying that's the same, right? Because none of these are like strength 
conferences. I was the only fitness coach at any of these conferences, but I was trying to see like, well, where, where are they right? And where are they right? And where are they right? Okay, great. So they're all saying this bottom line. Okay. Adaptive physiology would state that you need to have good gut health for X, Y, Z adaptations or whatever. And so that's kind of how it's evolved over the years. Cause my thoughts have changed like every year. If I was to like, look back every year, the way I kind of view things does shift a little bit, but the germ theory was probably the, the beginning of that, like studying germ theory in school, you know, just understanding the basics of the immune system and then studying that more and more in school and then kind of digging into terrain theory. And then Dr. Tom, uh, who was a mentor of mine for a while, um, he really opened my eyes to the idea of terrain theory, talking about myisms and constitution, you know, and how all that kind of applies temperament as well. So digging into like, you know, your genetic capacity to handle things, because, you know, genetics does somewhat play a role but also your mental emotional state, as well as your current physiological state. And so that's kind of how, and what I took from Dr. Tom over the years was we all have like a genetic thing. Like I have the genetic SNP that is linked to autism. And so when we did like my medical genetic testing, we're like, Hey, that SNP is actually heavily linked to and correlated with autism and Asperger's that like, duh, it makes sense, right? Like I have Asperger's. And so there's a genetic component to that. At the same time, like MTHFR mutations and how that can play a part with potentially anxiety and other things. So there is a genetic component to stuff. And then there's also the mental emotional component, like life. If you're just, you know, struggling, like you grew up with uh, parents that you had to parent, right? Like you're now the parent of the parent. Maybe you struggle putting your needs first as an adult. And so because of that, you're not going to say no to other people so easily, which then leads to you know, spreading yourself too thin later in life and emotional distress, toxic relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And next thing you know, you're burned out. So your emotional health has suffered. And we have research that shows that, you know, your gut health, your immune system can be suppressed under emotional distress. And then, you know, of course we have the, the pure physiology of it too. Like, you know, Hey, are you living near a golf course exposed to pesticides all the time? Are you next to an airport always inhaling, you know, airplane fuel? Are you a pilot in the military or are you a special operations guy that's getting dropped off and, you know, infill and exfill on helos constantly inhaling this stuff. So, you know, you have the actual physiology side of it. And then just recognizing that nothing in the, nothing in the human body is infinite. You know, we have to replace stuff. So can you, can you define terrain for people? Like what, yeah. what, what does that encompass and, and the implications of that with physiology? Yeah. Terrain would just kind of be the overall terrain of the human. So I would look at terrain and say, okay, well, what is the current state of physiology? And I don't mean like the genetics. I just mean like, what is your body dealing with physiologically right now? So adaptive physiology would be like, Hey, you get a, a flu virus. You're, that that is technically a pathogen, so I don't see things from the lens of pathophysiology necessarily. And I used to call it the difference between pathophysiology and adaptive physiology, but over the years, learning more and more and seeing more and more, I realized that pathophysiology isn't inherently true either. Pathophysiology would state: you get the virus, you're sick. That's the pathology, and that's the physiology that comes from that. I started to see that as well. Actually, you get exposed to a virus but your physiology has adapted in a way that's going to say, Hey, let's not worry about fighting off sickness right now. Let's worry about this instead. So it's still an adaptation. So I think all of it's adaptive physiology. Just some people have adapted to be able to fight off of a sickness better than others. So when I think of terrain, I think of your genetic capacity. I think of like, you know, the genes you're born with of the genes you're born with. And we do know that genetics play a part with certain things, but then you also have, you know, your mental emotional state. So you have genetic capacity, you have your mental emotional state, and then you have your current state of physiology. Like, you know, are you overtraining? Are you um, exposed to toxicants or toxins? What's your food like? Your gut health, all these things, because your gut health isn't inherently genetic. If I go eat Taco Bell every day, my gut health will begin to change. If I go drink tap water in the Middle East, my gut health will begin to change. And at the same time, I could be in the best mood of my life, not codependent, great emotional boundaries, great mental health, uh, you go to therapy every month, blah, blah, blah. If I drink top water in Mexico, I'm still going to have some gut health issues. And so I look at physiology, I look at emotional, and I look at the genetics. And I kind of look at that as the terrain of the human. 
And so some people, you know, their terrain is less optimized uh, for one thing, and it's more optimized for another. Elite level CrossFitters, they're optimized for elite level CrossFit. They're not optimized to necessarily be super healthy and fight off sickness. So when I look at the terrain, that's kind of what I look at. And that's kind of what like Bouchamp would have said, like terrain theory, right? Like if you if you have poor terrain, and this is before we had electron microscopes and like genetic testing. So we couldn't really, you know, even just a hundred years ago, we barely started flying a hundred years ago, right? So you know, you think about that. Technology has come so far that our understanding of things, you know, in the 1800s is very different than now. It doesn't mean that it was wrong. It just means that we have a deeper understanding. It's like, oh, that's why. We knew that was true in 1892, but now we understand why it's true. But in 100 years, I'm sure that's going to get changed. Like the way we view things right now is going to be considered outdated in 100 years. So I just look at terrain theory as that theory of like, well, I have two people exposed to a sickness. Why does one get sick and the other does not? Like they're both exposed mm -hmm. to the flu. Why is one totally fine and the other not? And then I applied that to program design. Again, like why are three people in this gym getting better and three people not getting better and three people getting hurt following the exact same program? And the FMS illustrated this. Why do I have people not getting better at the FMS test, which arguably you should get better at it because it's a test and you know the requirements. Like if you know the answer to the test, you shouldn't fail the test. After you've done the test once, we have tons of research that even shows that just by doing the test, you improve the test because you just know how to cheat the test, right? But why is it that people are not getting better on the test, but they're getting better in the gym, et cetera? So I just was super confused you know everything that was told and taught to me in undergrad and even parts of grad school and then all of the post-education or postgraduate education stuff fms sfma tpi uh, frc pri all the stuff i did was like hey how come i see so many times you guys are wrong and it wasn't me trying to like call them out but i was just genuinely confused and being the you know professional toddler that I am, I like to ask why 17 times. So that's kind of how it all came about. So for anyone listening, sorry that I had 37 shoot-offs there, but that's kind of how my thoughts have evolved over the last 15 years. In your experience, do, do you see the bottom up impacting outcomes more than the top down? Or I, I it's kind of a loaded question, but I'm just curious yeah how you think about that yeah oh man um n equals one times a thousand to be honest with you the top-down approach um i actually kind of stole this um i don't remember where i saw it and, and you can explain what that means in case people don't yeah understand what we're yeah asking you so the top-down approach is stating that what's between the ears is controlling everything below the ears and then the bottom-up approach is what's below the ears controlling what's between the ears so if you look at like the cranial nerves um there's a cranial nerve called the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve uh basically like a vagabond right? a vagabond is something that goes everywhere right so like a vagus nerve is a nerve that goes everywhere and so it goes from the brain to your body now the neurophysiology of that nerve is typically afferent so afferent means that it goes from the body to the brain and an efferent signal uh, in the nervous system would be a signal that goes from the brain to the body so if i tell you to lift a barbell then that is an efferent contraction because you're going to tell your biceps to contract, shorten, and cause elbow flexion. So that's efferent contraction or efferent to signal. The afferent signal, A-F-F-E-R-E-N-T, is the signal that goes from the body to the brain. So if I put my hand on a stove, it burns. There's an afferent signal to my brain. The efferent signal is pull your hand away. Well, the vagus nerve is primarily afferent. And so what we know now is that like your gut health can directly impact your mental health. Your gut health can directly impact your hormonal function. Your gut health can impact your adaptations to strength and conditioning. We have a gut muscle axis. We have a gut brain axis. And so when we used to think of things like way, way back in the day, we used to call it adrenal fatigue because we didn't really know any better. And we know that the adrenals don't really fatigue, but we do have low cortisol. We absolutely can have conditions of low cortisol in the absence of autoimmunity. 
we can have high cortisol in the absence of autoimmunity as well. And we know that gut health can actually impede cortisol production. At the same time, inflammation can facilitate cortisol production. So it gets really tricky, but, and that's why, again, it's N equals one. So what we know is that like, if I have somebody that has a high viral load and let's say their lymphocytes skyrocket in their blood work, it's not uncommon to see a lower cortisol output. I'm not talking Addison's disease. I'm just talking lowered amounts of cortisol. And I saw this with COVID tons and tons. And I saw it with other viruses, but I saw it with COVID quite a bit. And we would see people get COVID, they get better, you know, and then it took them a while to feel like they could get back to the weights they were lifting, you know, two, three weeks later, they've been symptom-free for three weeks and they're still struggling to hit 80% for one. So a virus can shut down cortisol and it makes sense because cortisol can shut down antiviral immunity because cortisol has immune suppressing properties and it kind of has immune enhancing properties as well. And that's why it gets kind of weird because we have these cells called TH cells, T helper cells. And so cortisol can kind of suppress TH1 and increase TH2 cells. And so the, that gets really nitty gritty and nerdy, but essentially what that shows is that your body has this brilliant design to survive and your brain, it only cares about winning the day and procreating and carrying on your genetic lineage. And so I started thinking of everything in the sense of how is the brain just trying to keep people alive, right? So if you get a virus, COVID, flu, whatever, you can have a lowered amount of cortisol. And so um, what ends up happening is we start to prioritize, you know, killing this virus off. And after that virus is gone, after you're no longer sick, you're symptom free, well, cortisol might take a little while to ramp back up. And so I saw this a lot with people that are like, man, I can't hit 80% for one. What the heck is going on? Like, it's been three weeks. I should be better. I feel good. I sleep fine. I got energy throughout the day. I just don't have that gear. I can't shift into that last gear to go there, you know? And that was a sign where I, would, I, I did Dutch testing. I would look at people's AM cortisol just through blood, urine cortisol through Dutch. And I was like, man, your cortisol is low. Well, it makes sense because their body is just, the engine is still starting to click back on, right? It's almost like the alternator is not working or whatever. So that would be an example of adaptive physiology. And so how do we support that? Well, I'd want to support your immune system. I'd want to, you know, try and support your nervous system. And there's different things you can do, like biotherapeutic drainage can help with some of that too. But that would be an example of adaptive physiology. There was a stimulus that caused an adaptation and now you're struggling to adapt to the training and get stronger. And so an example of the terrain being negatively impacted. And then as a result, the performance is impacted negatively. Could be. Um, I mean, yes, maybe there was a negative impact from the virus for sure. Uh, I'm not a virologist, so I'm not going to be able to like speak to like the 10,000th degree of how this works. And I'm not an immunologist, so I can't like, I'm not a PhD in that world, but I only went to grad school for a master's, so I don't have a PhD. But what I would say is, if you walk up to the virus, this germ thingamabob, and your terrain is not already good enough, you might get hit a little harder and it might take a while to bounce back more than other people. But on the flip side, this virus just might hit you hard in general. And, you know, so did you walk up to it predisposed or did the virus just knock you on your butt because it's a virus and it's what happens, right? Like I got sick in February. We all get sick. Like I'm not saying we shouldn't get sick. We should be able to get sick. And, you know, after I was symptom free, I was back squatting 405 again, like 10 days later. So it wasn't, it didn't knock me completely on my butt, but I will say the sickness absolutely rocked me more so than I have been in many years. I mean, my fever hit 102, 103, like it was wild. I was out. I would blame that on my terrain. I had poor emotional health during that period. Um, my gut health was absolutely atrocious. Um, and I would argue that the gut health was atrocious in large part because of the emotional health. And so it left me susceptible to longer term sickness. Whereas usually when I get sick, it's like, yeah, I get a fever, 102, whatever. 36 hours later, I'm good. It took like two weeks. It was wild. And uh, that never happens. And so my terrain walking into that wasn't that great in the first place. Because remember, terrain is genetics, physiology, 
and emotional health. And yeah, emotional health can impact physiology. They're not in silo necessarily, right? Like your, your emotional health can impact genetic expression too, right? So, you know, genes, it's kind of like the old thing, like, hey, I'm obese because it runs in my family. No, you're obese because no one runs in your family. Like it's, you're not fat because of genetics, you're fat because you choose to eat shitty foods and not exercise. And that could very well because, or be because of emotional health. I won't deny that. Like emotional health can dictate behaviors, which then dictates genetic expression. So none of them are in silo. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where research gets really weird because everything has to be looked at in a silo. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, when I make a study, if I'm going to study something, I have to isolate a variable and study that one thing, right? So, you know, then nothing in the real world works in silo. Humans are not mechanistic creatures that fit into a box. We're meat sacks with a consciousness. We were impossible to study accurately in a lab. And so, and I'll probably get some people with graduate degrees screaming at me for that, but you just can't study a human in a mm-hmm. lab. It doesn't work, yeah. not accurately. And so, you know, looking at emotional health, physiology, gut health, mm-hmm. liver function, I would look at the physiology and claim it's more like your amunctories outside of the CNS amunctory, but you think of like your lungs, your skin, your kidneys, your gut health. Um, and your liver health, right? And then the amunctory of the CNS is technically also an amunctory, but I would say your emotional health and then those amunctory functions and then your genetics, really, all those play a part with the terrain. That kind of like makes up the terrain, right? So if your terrain isn't good, your adaptations to fitness won't be as good. Mm -hmm. Your likelihood of pain could be higher. Isn't always, but could be. And again, we can't predict anything. If I can't predict it, how do I prevent it? can't mm-hmm. i can't prevent the car accident on the corner because i couldn't i couldn't i can't prevent it because i can't predict it mm-hmm. you know what i mean the only way you can prevent it is if i see it coming I'm like oh crap i need to get out there and save someone mm-hmm. now i've prevented it but i saw yeah. it coming so i predicted it yeah it's so interesting you're talking about that how the easiest example is like the obese person because you know you see an obese person and your your brain instantly wants to go to What's the thing I can pin that on for why that's the outcome that somebody's in? But then if you do that, then you're trying to isolate a variable, but you can't isolate a variable because there's just so many that impact the outcome. And so then it's like, you're almost chasing your tail because then you're like, ah, well, is it this? Is it that? Well, it's all of them. Okay, if it's all of them, then how, (laughs) where do we go from here? (laughs) Yeah, well, that comes back down to the top down, bottom up approach, right? So we go back to the vagus nerve because I know I kind of went on a tangent there by vagus nerve being a majority afferent. Mm-hmm. Well, the top-down approach is looking at what's between your ears, controlling the physiology, your emotional health, right? So if I talk to that obese person, I'm and they, they, they come to me first. I don't go to them, right? Like if I'm a pulmonologist, I'm not going to go up to the smoker at a bar and be like, hey, I'm a pulmonologist. You shouldn't smoke. Here are the reasons. No, it's not going to work. They have to come to you first, right? Mm-hmm. So if this obese person comes up to me, and they're like, hey, I can't live like this anymore. Mm-hmm. I got kids and I got a family and I feel like crap. And I really want to see my grandkids get older and I want to have great grandkids. First and foremost, I, uh, I steal this term from Dr. Clue, who's a PhD. And uh, you've talked to her in the mm-hmm. past as well. She's incredible. She says, honor the ask. So an obese person comes up to me. Who am I to judge? Let's say everything in their repertoire of sickness and health and their obesity is because of emotional issues. Who am I to judge, right? Like I haven't walked in their shoes. So instead it's my job as the coach to sit down and honor their vulnerability and just listen to them and ask them how I can best support them. And then when I come up with the game plan, cause it's a collaboration, it's not a dictation. When I come up with the game plan, I ask them how they feel about it. I ask them, do they feel like it's truly something they can attack or if it's too complex or whatever? And I try to get a feel. And that's where the art of coaching kind of comes in because when you're a brand new coach, you can ask these questions, but your intuition on like, oh, this client's saying they can do it, but deep down, we both know they're not going to be able to, but they think they can because they're so unconscious. You and I have experienced that. Like, hey, sound like a good plan. Sounds great, coach. I can do it. Two days later, they're like not doing it. And you're like, dude, you said you could do it. An experienced coach with mastery could look at them and be like, no, nah, I don't think you actually mean that. You probably can't do this. I'm going to tailor it back 10%. So the mastery of coaching is a part of that. But 
I just sit with them and ask like, what's going on? It's like, I can't give up my sweet tea. Okay, great. Like, let's talk about sweet tea. Why do you love sweet tea so much? Well, you know, growing up, my parents were never around, but I always got to hang out with my grandma. My grandma made such great sweet tea and she died five years ago. And I just really miss my grandma. And it's like, oh shit. Yeah. That sweet tea brings you back to the memories of childhood. It's going to be tough to give that up because there's something you're getting out of this. And so, yeah, behavior and emotions can absolutely play a part with that specific condition in obesity. Um, and at the same time, like if you don't grow up in a household where people exercise, it can be foreign to you. And we gravitate towards what we're familiar with, right? If we're used to taking care of somebody and ignoring our needs, I had this amazing client. I won't say their name just due to privacy, but they grew up in a house where they had an older sibling with Down syndrome. And this client had to never get their needs met because their sibling had to have their needs met. And it took a number of years working with this client to make them realize like, hey, you're codependent. You never put your needs first. That's why you're always in pain. That's why you're never healthy. And so, you know, your emotions, you're getting burned out. So your emotional health is impacting your physiological health, right? So you get sick a lot easier. You get hurt a lot easier. You're too burned out to get stronger. Your hormones are burned out, et cetera. So that's the top-down approach. That's me going, like, let's talk about this. Why are you struggling to express your needs? Why are you struggling to set boundaries? Let's have a conversation about this. And then the bottom-up approach is like, yeah, man, like everything was great, dude. And then I went on this deployment and I had to freaking, you know, live off the economy and I was eating some local foods and, you know, I accidentally ended up getting some tap water in me. And dude, I had like diarrhea for like two days straight. I lost six pounds in like six hours. And uh, ever since then, I've just been unable to find that gear. I've been unable to like push it. And I got a selection in six months and I just don't feel like I'm going to make it. Okay, great. That's probably not top down. That's probably bottom up right? Your gut health is all sorts of jacked up and you have all these different things going on in your gut and potentially your liver. And that vagus nerve, which is primarily afferent, is going to tell the brain, hey, we got this thing going on down here. Help. So what is the brain going to do? How do I survive? What do I need to do to prioritize life? How do I survive this? And so we've seen people with chronic inflammation from gut health issues have hormone problems, low testosterone, right? I've seen it with men. They're like, hey, I, my sex drive is gone. I don't have a sex drive anymore. I don't get morning wood. Uh, my wife is pissed because she feels like I don't love her anymore. Uh, blah, 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 blah. It's like, all right. So, you know, we do some blood work. I'm like, dude, your eosinophils are at 10%. What's going on, brother? Oh, yeah, man. Like, I just, I poop every three days. Like, dude, there's something going on here. And then we get after it. We do stool tests. We figure out what's up. Come up with the protocol train them properly, change nutrition, fix their gut health, optimize their gut health, whatever you want to call it, create diversity in the gut. And then bam, morning wood, great sex drive, you know, romance is back into love life. Right. And you know, that's the bottom up approach. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't feed on each other. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think people get so caught up. They're like, Oh, I'll take the bottom up approach. Okay. But terrible gut health. Like imagine being a man and you can't get morning wood. And then you really can't have sex because you just don't have drive and you, you struggle to kind of like keep it up. And then all of a sudden, the mental impact that has. And then it's a positive feed forward loop, right? Or a feedback loop, right? It's positive feedback loop. So it's like, well, this thing kind of encourages the next thing, which then re-encourages this. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. So and I know the, the listeners can't see my fingers, but it's like you have this circle and it's going counterclockwise. I have to stick a block in there. So when it hits that block, it bounces and starts to go clockwise. Mm -hmm. But as it bounces, it goes up. So if I'm to visualize that, it's like here, boom, and then another one. And then it's like, boom, and then it goes this way. And it's just this constant growth and spiral, spiral up. And so that's the bottom up approach. And that doesn't necessarily mean gut health. It could be kidneys. Like for me, uh, years ago, I used to do a lot of uh, plyos, um, a lot of um, tumbling. Yeah. And... I did, which you're not really supposed to do this many, but I, I did like 200 back tucks in a session. It was a ton, dude. And I have pretty powerful legs. Like I'm a, just a decently powerful guy. And so I was like, I'm good. Uh, and I have a tendency to overboard things. Like once I read something, I have to go figure out everything about that thing. Well, I do it in physical expression. It's just like, well, I know how to do back tucks. I can do gainers. I can do front tucks. I can do all these different movements and tumbling. Now let me just go do it for three hours straight because you don't feel it. Well, I kid you not, I went to a CrossFit workout after that. 
And it wasn't wild. It was like all upper body stuff. And then the next day, my urine looked like Pepsi. And I talked to a friend of mine who was an ER doc. And he was like, dude, you actually have rhabdo. I don't need to do blood tests to know this. Like you have rhabdo and you need to do this. And so I just drank a ton of water and I ended up okay eventually. Um, but I was wrecked. I was so sore. I couldn't get out of bed. I had to get help out of bed. It was pretty bad. And since then I battled with kidney issues and I battled with a low GFR and GFR. There's been some arguments about GFR and its capacity to really tell you about kidney function, but long story short, my GFR has been in the sixties and seventies, even in my twenties. And that's not cool. It should be like 90 plus, especially at my age, right? If you're 72 and your GFR is at 80, awesome. Like I'm actually really happy to see that. But you know, when you're a 35 year old male, 30 year old male, and your GFR is like 63, well, we got a problem here, right? Like the check engine light's not on yet, but your car's making a funny noise. We might need to work on this. So I've battled that for a while. And so, you know, you might have those kind of issues with people, you know? And so kidney function is huge because its whole job is more or less to filter out hydrogen, right? We're talking about acid-based balancing. Well, we know that carbon dioxide based on the Haldane effect you know, how the Haldane effect basically will tell you your affinity to put oxygen into muscles and tissues from hemoglobin, right? Well, we know that if your kidneys aren't functioning very well and your carbon dioxide gets out of optimal range, the Haldane effect can be impacted. And I kid you not, I've done this thousands and thousands of times in my career. I take somebody's GFR and I look at what their GFR is and maybe their kidney function in general, BUN, creatinine, creatine kinase, whatever you want to look at. And I'll go, okay, we're having some kidney problems. Well, let's just take some pellitory of the wall. It's an awesome herb that's very, very, very nephroprotective. And so it really helps the kidneys quite a bit. And we'll see their GFR go up and up and up and it climbs up. I will see them have the exact same level of RPE and they'll have the exact same score on a row because I'll pace, I'll tell them, hey, 8K row, 32 minutes, two minutes per 500. That is your pace. Set the pace boat and go. And they'll always be able to do that. I have countless athletes can do that. But after we start working on their GFR, they're like, yeah, you know what? My ventilatory rate was a lot lower because I was able to put oxygen into my tissues better. And so that Haldane effect, the, the optimization of that is improved. Well, that's adaptive physiology and the kidneys being a monk tree. So that's the bottom up approach. So it's not just gut health because it could also be kidney function, right? it gets a little bit more deep after that, but yeah, those, those are some of the things that I started to look at. And I was like, well, what are the things that are stopping people from adapting to the program? You know, and absolutely it can be mental, emotional stuff. Perfect is the enemy of good enough, right? Like the FMS, Kelly Starrett. I mean, these people were monumental influencers in the fitness industry, but like to be a supple leopard and kick rocks, Right? Like not everyone should squat toes forward like a Chinese Olympic weightlifter. Maybe you need to have your toes out more. Maybe you need this and like stop telling everybody, this is how we squat. This is the best way to squat. It's like, shut up. That's so dogmatic. You're just trying to sell a textbook. You're trying to sell something and make a ton of money on it. And you're making people scared. And now people are like, well, I got to have this and I got to have that. And I got to have that. And I got to have this. And then I'll finally be able to do that. No, you're already good enough for that thing. I have a, an amazing client. I won't say her name because I like to respect privacy, but she used to work with a different coach. Uh, and that coach is like, well, we got to lose weight for you to get muscle ups. Logically, it kind of makes sense. You know, it's like, well, if we lose 20 pounds, you're lighter. Let's go do muscle ups then. She could do weighted pull-ups. She could do weighted dips. She was strong as hell. She can do strict pull-ups. She was fit. I mean, she's a beast. She's an absolute beast. And I kind of just told her, I was like, hey, you know what? Let's go handwrite a ton of reasons and go journal, handwrite a ton of reasons. I don't remember what her number was. I think her number was 20, but typically I say 37 and just go write why you can already do it. And what that does is it creates a stumping point or like a stalling point. You can create a couple of reasons. Yeah, I can do it this way. This is why I can do that. This is why I can do that. This is why I can do that. And then boom, you get stumped. Now you have to get into your creative brain. Your creative brain goes, ah, you have no idea. You sit there and you work on it. Well, as soon as she got it done, she had a ton of reasons as to why she was already good enough for muscle-ups. Go do a muscle-up. She flew right up. 
zero change in her physiology, zero change in anything, no different strength training. She didn't PR a way to dip or a way to pull up her circles. None of that. She just got out of her own way. So the top-down approach is also a little bit about that as well. And I think mastering and coaching is building a real relationship with a human and figuring out, do I take the top up, I'm sorry, bottom up approach or the top down approach? And how do I do that? N equals one times a thousand. And so blood work, conversation, communication, empathy, honoring the ask, just sitting there and being like, man, what's going on? How can I best help you? And then asking tough questions and truly challenging people. You know, I've told a client a couple of years ago, uh, I was like, hey man, you hate your job. You need to quit. Your life is miserable and you're not getting anywhere because you hate your life, man. You're not happy. And, you know, he, he did. He eventually quit his job. And I just straight up told him. I called him out. And he quit his job. And now he's got his house with his, uh, his wife. You know, and they've got a kid now. And they've got a dog. And he's never been happier. And him and I talk almost daily on Instagram. He's not a client anymore because he didn't need me. It was like, dude, I don't, I don't think I need you anymore. No, you, you really don't need me, dude. Like, you've everything that I could teach you, that's it. You don't need me anymore. So we still talk every day. And that's what it's about. You just got to recognize that we're all humans. We're all, we're all fucked up in our own weird way. You know, <laughs> that's what a relationship is. You yeah. know, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect, but you're perfectly imperfect for me. And I'm perfectly imperfect for you. Let's do this together and let's grow together. I make mistakes all the time. So, yeah, that's good. That was, I was glad you were sharing those pieces. Cause I was one thing I wanted to ask about was, uh, cause that was, just, that was something that striked me early on when, when I met you and we would talk and you would mention how you you would see changes and improvements in performance without big changes in training like the actual program and how i you would you know i'd paraphrase you you'd be like yeah i haven't changed literally anything we did some of this stuff over here and changed some of the internal stuff and there was like this massive pr and whether it was a 5k road test or a strength test something i always had the time and it's like man how does how does that happen? Well, you know, that's, uh, that's very interesting because you wouldn't, you don't think that at first you think, you know, at least when you get into coaching that the design is going to dictate a lot of it. Now to a degree as we would, I, I would assume you'd agree with me, the design does play a role, but there's a limit to that where you can manipulate the outcome drastically with the internal systems, which you've been elaborating on. Um, so maybe there's something there that you could share a little bit about improving performance yeah. outside of the program. Yeah. Well, you're not wrong. Um, the program matters. If you want to get stronger at back squatting and you never back squat and you're already pretty strong, you're probably not going to get much stronger. If you never back squat and your back squat 1RM is 100 pounds and I give you walking lunges, yeah, you're probably going to get stronger, right? Like high school kids, they look at a weight, they get stronger, right? But there also has to be a need. And so like for me, I mean, I've, I've shared this quite a bit in the past, but I grew up thinking I was a very ugly person. I had a traumatic experience at eight years old and it completely fucked me up. And for years, I thought I was a very hideous person. 14 years old, you get to high school, all the guys that are popular have girlfriends and all those guys had six packs. So 14 year old me is like six pack equals girlfriend. Like that's obviously, you know, not true. And when it is true, it's probably not the girlfriend you want anyway. So I became obsessed with the ab wheel. I bought an ab wheel for 50 bucks back in the day. Like they were kind of a novel thing, right? And so like I spent 50 bucks on an ab wheel where now it's like $8, but whatever, you know, reverse inflation. But uh, I did 200 reps the first day. Fucking absolutely fucked me up so good. Oh man. So yeah, I did it because I didn't feel it. I was like, I don't feel the burn i guess i just got to keep doing it till it burns and then i i got bored of it i was like i like i just now i'm bored of it and i'm tired i'm just gonna stop and the next day oh my god like oh, i was too young to recognize what rhabdo was so i don't know if i had rhabdo back then because i was only 14 but it messed me up that amount of eccentric contractions it destroyed me but i became obsessed with abs right and so i ended up hyper obsessed with not eating food, right? My breakfast was water. My lunch was salad with four pieces of ham and no dressing. And my dinner would be like maybe a little bit of food. I mean, I really under ate and I really jacked myself up. 
and I became super lean. And if you look at photos from back then, I mean, I think I was a buck 60 and I'm six one, right? And just super lean. And then I meet this girl and this girl was cute and she was like, oh, you've got nice abs. And I was like, yeah, I do. She was like, but you don't have a nice chest. You got to work on your chest. And I was like, motherfucker. And that crushed me again, because I, I was ex I was seeking external validation because that traumatic experience took away external val validation from me. And I wasn't really the most popular person in school. And you know, I just wasn't that guy, right? So I became obsessed with bench press. And the reason why I say that is because before we got on this podcast, like, I was talking about bench press. <laughs> I was like, well, why can't we bench press every week, man, or every day? Like, why can't I bench every day if Olympic lifters can squat every day? Why the hell can I not do bench every day? And I do bench almost every day. Every time you see me, I'm benching, right? Like, and I warm up. I warm up with 225 and I'll do 14 to 15 reps cold. And there's a running joke. Like if the bar doesn't weigh 225, I can't even see it. I'm like, what are you doing? You're just flailing your arms around and like someone's benching 205. And I'm like, I don't see a bar, bro. And that's just like a running joke of it. But I walk up to 225 cold, 14, 15 reps. I would be an amazing practice squad punter in the NFL. I would crush that part of the combine and be a practice squad punter. But same thing goes for like ab stuff, right? Like I'm so good at abs. Like I don't even know if you're supposed to brag about that. Like people brag about their deadlift. I brag about like my ab wheel, but that's why I'm also really good at the toes to bar. Like I'm a big dude, 222, around nine, 10% body fat, six, one. I can do toes to bar all day. But what is an ab wheel? It is a horizontal toe to bar. It is an anti-lumbar extension and it is an anti-shoulder flexion movement with a very close grip. Well, the bottom portion of a toe to bar as you descend is anti-lumbar extension and anti-shoulder flexion. Except with an ab wheel, it's under controlled, slow, eccentric contraction, which is wild because having done thousands upon thousands of reps of ab wheel, I just hop on a bar and I can do toes to bar all day. It took me maybe five seconds to figure out a toe to bar. Well, all of that comes from a specific psychological need. And even though I've gone to therapy and I've worked through a lot of those like traumatic experiences in my life, there's still that scar, that mental scar. Like I still look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I wish I could be handsome like Sam, you know? Um, but I'm serious. Like a part of me, I'm like, give yourself more credit, Michael. <laughs> I'm like, why can't I look like Marcus Philly? Oh my God. It sucks. It's not fair, <laughs> but that scar is still there. And so I can walk up to a bench. Like I, I typically take six weeks off in the year from lifting, basically from Thanksgiving to new year's. And I just go crazy. I go camp in blizzards. I go find the worst snowstorm and I just go like March into it and camp out in like sub-zero temperatures, just do stupid stuff. Right. Like I probably should freeze to death at some point or I will freeze to death. Um, so if you, don't get programs sent down. My clients email you next winter. And that's what happened. But I'll be like, Michael, <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> but I, so I don't work out for those six weeks and I can show up not having bench press in a month and a half, walk up in three sets or less. I'll hit in three sets or less. I'll hit 315 for a couple of reps, having not bench pressed. There is such a deep need within my soul for that. And I think that's also, you know, the same thing kind of, just for like all my martial arts. So I've done a lot of martial arts over my life and I'm an avid practitioner of grappling still. And uh, there's like a need for that. Like I've, I have a deep belief like in me that a man should always be the protector, right? I'm 6'1", 220. If I get married and my wife is five foot two, 115, come on, somebody tries to attack us, like get them, honey. Like, no, I'm. The, it's my job to protect. And there's a deep like etched in belief in me that that's my role. And partially probably because I was kind of raised Japanese and I was raised with that like mentality of like men are the fighter class of the family. And it's not a, it's not a bully, but it's a protector. And so I'm very big on that. So there's like a psychological need to do that. And I think that's why I can, you know, just do what I do. And that's something that we have to acknowledge with our clients and some clients like God love her Hootie. Everyone, everyone that works with me knows Hootie and Hootie is one of the closest people in my entire life worked with her for nine, nine years now, whatever. Right. And she doesn't have a deep need. Like there's no psychological need in her to squat 300 pounds. She'll never squat 300 pounds. She doesn't need it. Mm -hmm. 
I needed it. Our clients need it. And so that's that top-down approach. And I first kind of started studying that through uh, Kenny Weiss, actually. Kenny Weiss told me that, uh, he told me to kind of like show me that I was an example of that, but he was like, people that push their physical potential have some form of trauma that's driving that, you know, like, and we're all, we've all had trauma. We've all been through stuff, right? It doesn't matter who you are. First world problems or not, it's still tra trauma because it's your perception that changes it. And so it wasn't a judgment thing. It was just like, dude, the fact that you have to squat 405 on any given day, that's your standard. That's from some form of trauma. And so when somebody comes to me with those goals, I just want to understand why. And that's the top-down approach. And then, you know, some people, you just realize that they don't need it. Yeah. And sometimes you realize that they identify with not having it. And that's where the top-down approach gets really fun because it's like, you're not getting stronger because you identify as the guy that's a hard gainer. Mm -hmm. And so you're actually subconsciously preventing your own gains because your verb bitch to yourself is I'm a hard gainer. It doesn't matter what I do, how much yeah. I eat. I don't put on muscle. The self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like you're subconsciously proud of being a hard gainer. And it's you're like, in it. You won't allow yourself because then you're, you're, um, you're proving yourself wrong. Yes. And, you, and we don't like to prove ourselves wrong. Yeah. We like to prove ourselves right. Yeah. So if you've constantly proved yourself right by being that hard gainer or that person that can't get muscle ups or whatever, you have to rewire that. Mm -hmm. And it starts with just awareness. And I, you've talked about this tens of thousands of times in your career, but you have this unconscious level of incompetence. You don't even realize you're doing it. Like I did not realize that I was getting in my own way until my therapist was just like, yo, do you ever just think about this? And I was like, no, jerk. Now that I'm thinking about it, that sucks. And it's a little painful because you go from this like, Da, 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 da. I don't know. I have a problem. I'm great. I'm happy. And then you're like, oh crap, unconscious incompetence is now conscious incompetence. I'm aware that I'm doing this to myself. And then the mind is a muscle. You got to do the reps. You want to grow the muscle. You got to do the curls, right? So you want to get the girls, you got to do the curls. And ladies, if you want to get the guys, you got to do the tries. So you turn that into conscious competence. You're actively working on it. Your handwriting, that's my go to handwriting. Because if you type, it doesn't work. But if you handwrite, you're putting mind-muscle connection and you're actually thinking about it as you do it. Mm -hmm. And then over time, with the work on it, it becomes unconscious competence. It's just natural to you. And then you just got to move on to the next layer of shit and there's always shit to work on. Mm -hmm. and so that's the top-down approach. Yeah. And I find that that's really powerful. And then the bottom-up approach again, you had yeah. Rabdo 10 years ago and... Yeah, you get you get winded really easily, even just walking up the stairs, even though, you know, you have a 5k row that's 1730, mm -hmm. but you tie your shoes and you also get winded. Well, okay, let's talk about kidney function there, because that mm -hmm. could be a part acidosis, mm -hmm. potential renal acid load, nutrition, all these different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the need thing's super interesting, because you'll see, you'll see clients or athletes who need to succeed or need to accomplish whatever this goal is and they get better no matter what like nothing gets in the way yep and and then of course then you have the other client or athlete who i want this but everything gets in the way yes and and at a certain point as a coach you start to see what's transpiring which is what you just alluded to around the hard gainer it's the same idea it's like mm -hmm. oh if i have this going on or this or that and it's like you don't really want that you don't yeah. And, and maybe you need to give yourself permission to acknowledge you don't and put your energy somewhere else that you yeah. actually want yeah. versus the, the, the former example, they want it, go get it. And nothing's going to stop me. Yeah. And, and those are, I mean, they're fun to work with because it's the resilience is insane. Yeah, um, But it's, uh, it's, it's so interesting because this of course ties into the top down, how, uh, how impactful the top down can be in outcomes. Um, and then of course, through conversations with you, how impactful the bottom up can be. Um, and so I think that's a, uh, this adaptive physiology is just a very interesting side of coaching that yeah. adds another, uh, a layer of color to the, to the portrait of, okay, here's this person and it's a very dynamic system and, and, uh, you know, we, we can't zone in on one thing particularly. We need to, you know, stay broad at times and, and taking a, uh, a holistic approach yeah. for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think uh, 
people people don't and it's not their fault it's not a judgment it's just people don't realize how nuanced fitness actually can be i mean the goal is to keep it as simple as possible but no simpler right like that's mastery but there is a lot of potential nuance and so when somebody says like what should i do it's like i want to get stronger in the back squat we all know that this can get a little nuanced but if you really really understand it then it becomes almost an impossible question to answer because it's like well i need to get stronger in the back squat it's 315 pounds and i want to get to 405 what do i need to do okay well let's just break down the movement why why do you not have that is it just time under the bar okay just get under a bar is it tight ankles so your mechanics are off is it a bracing problem is it a breathing problem is it a fear um because you hurt yourself five years ago and you don't want to re-hurt yourself is it a lack of capacity to adapt because your testosterone is low well if your testosterone is low why is it low is it because you're not sleeping because you have an emotional thing where you're just staying up late? Is it a lifestyle thing because of your job? Is it because of gut health? Do you live near an airport and you're toxic? I mean, there's so many things that can go into why is your back squat not getting stronger? And I think that's where I wish people understood how complex this was, but people did not go to school for 10 years to study this either. And they didn't, you know, dedicate their life to this craft, but if people understood how complex it was, they may realize how important it is to have a coach. They may realize how important it is to have somebody that has that mastery. Because we have doctors and we have lawyers and we have car mechanics and we have people we pay to help us with stuff. But for some reason with fitness, people are like, oh, I just follow a blog program. And then when that stops working, I'll follow a new blog program. It's like, well, did you ever wonder why the person that follows that blog program gets so much better and you keep not getting better no matter what blog program you write or you, you follow? No, like you really should invest in yourself. And that's what coaching is. It's like you literally are investing in yourself. I have multiple coaches and a therapist and a doctor. I spent a lot of money on myself. I'm very big on investing in myself because I know that that's going to turn around and give me a return on that. And so I, I, I wish people understood how nuanced it can get. And at the same time, it, it doesn't have to mean that the approach is complex. A great coach, a masterful coach will just kind of give you the direction and tell you what to do. And then if you ask why, they'll explain all of the why behind it. But otherwise, that, that masterful coach is not going to overload you. They're just going to recognize, like, all right, this is what I need to get this person. I'm going to give them this. And that's it. You know? The coach that I was 10 years ago would probably explain a little bit more to a client, but these days it's just like, do your dead bug, do your squat, go for your jog and make sure you go to bed early. And like everything else will kind of fix itself for that kind of client. But there's so much that goes into that. Like, well, why do I need to go to bed at nine versus midnight? Why am I not going to get stronger during Ramadan? Because Ramadan is a pause, right? So uh, I can't remember how to say it. Mabruk? I can't remember how to say it now. Um, it's like celebratory or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so long story short, I think people, if they just recognize how nuanced it gets, mm -hmm. the top-down approach, the bottom-up approach, adaptive physiology, yeah. and how germ theory versus terrain theory actually applies to fitness, right? Two people get exposed to the same disease, same sickness. Mm -hmm. One gets symptoms, one does not. Two people exposed to the same physical stressor. Mm -hmm. One gets better, one gets hurt. What the heck? Mm -hmm. It's not the thing that they're exposed to. It's, are they ready to survive it? And that's like the human. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that, uh, if I recall as well, um, Pasteur at the end of his life had said, terrain theory is right on his deathbed. He was, and this is just from talking to a couple of different doctors in that field. They were like, he actually did say at the end of his life, he's like, actually terrain theory is right. Germs will only make you sick if you're susceptible to it. And then he passed away. But again, like study the history of war and medicine, you know, are we going to tell people that get their legs chopped off in war? Hey man, just take a probiotic. Your leg is not going to get gangrene. Of course not. We're going to have to find ways to keep people alive. Mm -hmm. And modern medicine has done a good job at that. Mm -hmm. You lost your leg. Here's some penicillin. You won't get gangrene. You're good. Mm -hmm. You know? Awesome. Well, maybe as a, uh, as we come to a close, you could list out, 
your five pillars of performance because I think in our next episode we can dive into because yeah. I think that's a nice uh, segue from yeah the foundation we've laid yeah so when you think about like my concepts of adaptive physiology um, and how I view it personally I think of five pillars of physiology is theology that create performance right so if you think about a pyramid a pyramid can only go up as high as it is wide. The bigger the base, the higher the peak. So my pillars for my base does not start with aerobic work. It does not start with strength and muscle endurance and all these different things. It starts with physiology. And so that would be circadian biology, sleep, and routine. You have oxygen delivery capacity, so not only am I discussing, um, you know, anemia and various types of anemias, so transporting of oxygen, but I also am referring to the ability and affinity for tissues to take up oxygen and or hemoglobin to, you know, do its job. So then you also have hormones, so endocrinology, and I don't mean just steroid hormones, sex hormones, cortisol, et cetera, thyroid hormone, right? Thyroid hormone, I have found that in more men, we, we get our thyroid hormone to tank before our testosterone completely tanks. And that's what I've seen just from my own experiences. My best guess for that, because I haven't seen any papers that study it like in fitness or whatever, but is it's kind of like the brain trying to shut down metabolic activity to slow us down so we can still maintain the capacity to reproduce mm -hmm. or slow us down, but still keep some level of testosterone so we can recover from whatever was making us go, go, go. But again, I don't have anything to say that. That's just me thinking about it critically. And then you have uh, blood sugar management. And so the ability or what I would just call glucose tolerance, right? Can I put sugar into the cell? And if I do put sugar in the cell, can I use it? And then also immune system function. So you have immunity, which is, you know, immune system. So gut health plus everything else, blood sugar, um, hormones, oxygen delivery, and uh, circadian biology. And then I take a systems-based approach to that. So if I look at, and those are my pillars, and then the systems, I work on systems to make things better. And so what I mean by that is if somebody shows up at my door and they have a hard time with you know their immune system, well, I look at among trees. So again, got liver, kidneys, your skin, your lungs and your central nervous system. The gut and the liver, I consider connected as an emunctory. Some have argued in the past that they're separate and they argue that the CNS is a secondary emunctory. I argue that the gut and the liver are connected because of the hepatic portal vein. So if you just study anatomy, like they're just connected, right? So that's how I look at it. Um, and I kind of steal that from Dr. Tom because he's the one that also kind of illustrated that and proved that to be true over... 45 years of practicing medicine. And then I think of the human as an organism. So you have a human being, it's an organism. An organism is just a system of systems, right? So you have like a central nervous system, you have an, um, a nerve, you have a, a reproductive system, you have your digestive system, you have your skeletal system, MSK, muscle and skeletal system. So you have systems of systems and every system is basically just a bunch of organs. So your CNS, spine and brain, right? Digestive system, pancreas, intestines, stomach, blah, blah, blah. And then each organ is just a bunch of tissues. Those tissues are in all reality, those, those tissues are just a bunch of, you know, cells and cells are just macromolecules, fossil lipid bilayer, right? And then, well, a macromolecule is just a molecule, right? And then you, know, you want to break it down even further. You can start talking like quantum physics and stuff like that. But I don't like to take the cellular approach. And that's why I think medicine kind of gets after that. Is they, they like to take a, a, a cellular approach and they're just trying to keep people alive. My job isn't to treat disease. My job isn't to treat malignancy. You know, if I see something that could be a disease or malignancy, I got people I send to them for that. It's like, that's not my job. But I look at the system and I take that systems-based approach. So it's like, what system is going on here? Because the gut health, for example, touches everything. You improve your gut health, everything gets better. It's a domino effect. So I look at those pillars of physiological performance. And I say, well, what a monktory could be, quote unquote, malfunctioning that is causing 
this dysfunction in the physiology, right? Like, are you not sleeping? Well, why are you not sleeping? Oh, we have a lot of X, Y, Z. Oh, that system is leading to the problem staying asleep, which is leading to the problems tolerating high volume. Fix this thing, sleep gets better, and now you can tolerate more volume. So you can't stack, you know, two a days on poor gut health and poor sleep. You, know, you can, but eventually it topples over. And so I come in and I go, well, you know, I'm an expert at program design. I mean, I studied it at grad school. Like that's one of the things that I really specialize in in grad school. And I've taught program design all over the world. I know how to write a program, but really like, let's figure out what else is causing the problem. And then let's just say you're adapting and everything is good. Like I give you the workouts, you're getting better. Everything is improving. We can make a safe assumption that the physiological pillars are good enough. We don't have to be perfect. Let's just say it's good enough. And then if we get stumped, like, dude, why are you not getting stronger? You're 25 years old and you're not getting stronger and you're doing everything you can. Let's look at labs and dig in. And that's where those pillars kind of come into play because that kind of gives me my next clue. But I never start the blood work, typically. Sometimes I do, but I really try to start with just the fitness. Program design and nutrition. Let's build that. And then the mastery I have from everything else is what allows me to go, mm, no, this looks like this. Let's talk about that. Okay, yeah, that's probably a digestive problem. Well, let's do this and let's see what the blood work says. And let's go from there. So I like to start with the simple because if you don't, it's expensive and I don't like to get people paying a lot of money. I know a lot of naturopathic doctors out there that'll you'll spend two to three grand a month with them. Yeah, easily. And that's just on testing. That's not including their $1,000 a month protocols. It's wild. The functional medicine world and the naturopathic medicine world a lot of them are just out there just like slaying in supplements and labs because they make money on labs. You do a Dutch test, they make money on that. You do supplements, they make money on it, right? And so I try not to do that. I try to keep it simple. And then once we're stumped, now let's go deeper. And mm -hmm. so that's where I start to use those pillars. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good little uh, tidbit for next time because yeah. we'll, uh, we'll open those up more. But uh yeah, where, where can people find you in case they don't follow or know where to get a hold of you or how to? Yeah, uh, find me in Scottsdale, Arizona. So if you're ever out in Scottsdale um, and you know somebody wants to just grab a beer and shoot the shit, I like shooting the shit with people. Um, and if anybody ever wants to roll, any jujitsu practitioners, um, I'll roll anytime. Anyone wants to bang, I'll bang. So I'm down. Um, and then otherwise, coach underscore michael underscore ban uh for my instagram and then uh you know, that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me just full disclosure i have a lot of clients that troll me with memes on the daily so if you send me a dm and i don't respond right away it's probably because i lost your dm because i'm getting trolled by my clients with fitness memes or memes that make fun of jujitsu people so <laughs> I might miss your DM. It's not me ignoring you. Just DM me again. I swear I'm not ignoring you. And I will not be offended if you DM me more than once. Or if you want to also troll me with funny memes, because my love language is memes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for your time, Michael. Yeah, Appreciate it. Me. Appreciate it. Crafting Fitness is powered by Crafted Coaching. To learn more about individually designed fitness and to explore our range of goal-driven programs, head to www.crafted.coach.